It's a reading from the book of Galatians, um, chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Many of us will have had the experience of opening a letter that gives us a real jolt. A couple of years ago, I was involved in a mix-up with an electricity company, and they thought that I owed them money, and so they would write to me. And at first, the letters were kind of, come on now. And then over time, it built up. And until by then, they were saying, like, scary men are going to break your door down unless you pay us in big red letters. And fortunately, it all, it all got sorted out, and that never happened. But I would open these letters, and whoa, yikes. Or um, some of you may remember from... I think it's the second Harry Potter when Ron Weasley is in trouble with his mum and she sends him a howler and it comes in the morning post uh, with a kind of red throbbing letter that then explodes with his mother's voice shouting at him. Well, this evening, that's a bit like what we have here as we open this letter from Paul to the Galatians. It is a passionate letter. See that in our passage. We'll see it all the way through. It is on fire, on In places, it is quite an angry letter, although we'll see that that anger is driven by the love that Paul has for his readers, his friends. These were people he um, had been traveling on his missionary journeys, the Apostle Paul, and he he had spent some time in this region, and he had been speaking the gospel, he'd been living with the people, and some of them had become Christians. He had planted these little churches, and then he moved on, as he did after a while, to carry on the work elsewhere, but Paul stayed in touch with the Galatians. He had an ear on how things were going in the churches there. And at some point, he heard news that made his heart sink in sadness, first of all, and then rise up in anger because false teachers had moved in amongst the fledgling churches. They were beginning to teach what he calls here another gospel. And worst of all, the Galatians, his friends, were listening They were starting to believe it, to swallow this new message. And so Paul writes this letter. There are three words. They're on the service sheets. There are three words that will sum up this passage that we have this evening and will also serve to introduce us into this letter as we study it over the coming semester. The urgency of Galatians, the message of Galatians, what's this letter about? And then third, the author of Galatians. Who is this man, Paul, and why should we listen to him? Three words. Now, the first of those, the urgency, I've already mentioned, and it's right there from the start. If you look at verse 1, 
Paul, in his other letters, he normally starts with some kind of pleasantries, you know, warm words. Hi, it's Paul here. Um, I've been praying for you guys. That's often what he said. I've been praying for you, and I've been so thankful. I've been thanking God for this about you, not here. Here, there are no pleasantries. He's straight into a defense of his own authority. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God our Father. He's straight into the fight, trying to win back his friends. Or if you look on to verse 6, I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, that's pretty strong stuff. He's not mincing his words. He's saying, what are you playing at? Why are you listening to these people? The tone is very urgent. And in fact, it couldn't be more urgent. Look on, please, to verses 8 and 9. Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. Those shocking final words. And then he repeats them in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now just think for a moment about what that, what that phrase means, to be accursed by God. It means that Paul is saying that these people who have been misleading the Galatians should be struck down and sent away from God forever into eternal punishment. Let them be accursed. And that's a really serious thing to say about another person. So why is Paul so strong here? Why is he so urgent? Because eternity is on the line. If the Galatians listen, if they follow this new message, they'll be walking away, not just from Paul, not just from Paul's message, but from God himself. Look at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you, i.e. they're deserting God. And so these people who are misleading the Galatians, leading them away from not just the gospel, but leading them away from God. And if you walk away from God, that means walking away from forgiveness, walking away from heaven. And so in leading people away from the gospel, these false teachers are leading people to ruin. And therefore, it's serious, let them be accursed, Paul says. Not over nothing, but because eternity is at stake. Paul feels about these false teachers who are changing the gospel the way that I suppose we might feel about medics who are swapping poison for the medicine that people need. It's not a minor issue. It's life and death. And that is why Paul is so urgent in this letter. Now, um, just to pin this down, please could you flick over and look at the start of chapter 5. Paul mentions here in the verses I'm going to read some things about the content of the false gospels. He talks about circumcision and keeping the law. Please don't worry about that for now. We'll get to that. For now, please just look at the stakes that Paul says, look at what Paul says is on the line. Chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, as I said, please don't worry about the details there, but look at the stakes. Going back into slavery, Christ being of no advantage to them. You have fallen away from grace. You are severed from Christ. That's why this is urgent, because that's what's on the line, eternity. Now, we need to move on, but um, just before we do, I, I wonder how you feel about this urgency from Paul. Inevitably, life for us is full of things that it wouldn't be worth fighting about. You like Chinese takeaway, I like Indian takeaway, I'm sure we can still be friends. You like Hibs, I'm not bothered about football. Uh, even things a bit more serious, you know, a person's political leanings, um, our opinions about important issues. In our culture, we are so used to saying, live and let live, each to his own. Let's agree to disagree. It's fine. And so when Paul says, no, let them be accursed, you shouldn't be listening to those people. Probably that, that doesn't sit very well with us, at least at first. It sounds a bit black and white. It sounds a bit fanatical. For us, I guess, like maybe sometimes we might have that kind of a tone of voice, like if a child wanders into the road and you say, no, stop. What are you doing? Stop. Then we might be very urgent. But Paul is taking that kind of tone and applying that to what people believe about Jesus. This passage says that what people believe about Jesus matters. Because if every single person, every single human being faces an eternal future for better or for worse, friendship with God forever or being sent away from him forever, that is not a thing that we can be laid back about. It's not an interesting, fun pastime and game. It matters. Now, some of you will be here investigating Christianity. What's the message? Is it true? I think that Paul's words here say to you, they say that in the strongest possible terms that you are wise in taking this seriously. It's a good decision. You need to keep thinking because this is important. And at church here, we'll try to do everything we can to help you because life and Christianity, it's not just a game. It's urgent. Or for us, if we are, we say we're already convinced Christians, as we think about the ins and outs of what we believe, or as we think about the different kinds of teaching that still swirl around the church, that is not an interesting pastime. It's urgent. Now, it's not that we should necessarily start quarreling with lots of other people and start saying, accursed. And some Christians are spoiling for a fight, and that's not a good thing. But there are things worth fighting for. There are matters of belief about which we, we, um, we can't just agree to disagree. As we think about people we know, or people around the world, who are as yet indifferent or confused or who just don't know about Jesus, that is urgent. Because life's not a game. Pray fervently. Work hard. Um, Take risks, speak boldly. All of that makes sense if the gospel is an urgent thing. We need to move on. 
what is the alternative message that Paul is addressing so urgently? Well, we need to see, secondly, the message of Galatians, which is this, that we are rescued and changed only by Jesus. We are rescued and changed only by Jesus. In quite a few of Paul's other letters, he has to address gross immorality in the churches. But here, the issue is not the immorality in Galatia, so much as people by their morality trying to earn the favor and acceptance of God. That's what the new teachers were saying. They were saying that in order to be accepted by God and therefore accepted in the church, the Christians had to keep certain rules. And specifically, they were saying that these Gentile Christians who would have been Romans and Greeks and Turks had to keep some of the laws from the Old Testament. That's why Paul talks about circumcision, which was the mark of Jewish identity and obedience. And he also talks later on about observing the festivals and the holy days. These new teachers were saying that in order to be fully acceptable to God, these Christians had to start observing some of the Jewish laws, which is why as the weeks go by, you'll hear us try to explain the letter, refer to the false teachers as the Judaizers, because they were, trying, they were saying that these Christians had to keep some of the Jewish laws. Now, at first, that sounds like it's not going to be a problem for us, right? Because when was the last time somebody tried to persuade Christians to observe Yom Kippur or stop eating bacon or even get circumcised? It's not very tempting. But think about the principle behind that. We, not may, we may not be tempted into doing those particular things in order to earn God's favor. But the idea that there are things that we can do to earn God's favor and to be fully accepted by him, that's alive and well, isn't it? The Judaizers might be ancient history, but the legalism that lies behind their teaching is still with us. And so that's another word that you'll hear me and whoever else is preaching use. These people are legalists, saying that the Christians had to, had to keep the law, whatever that might be, in order to be fully accepted by God. And that, that's not ancient history, is it? All of us, I guess in our hearts, instinctively feel that God will only really accept us if we try harder for him and if we, if we live a good life for him. Nothing comes for free in the world after all. And so with God, you have to earn it. Churches, maybe this church, are full of people who feel good about themselves because they are working hard for God and living upright lives, or else who feel bad about themselves because they feel they're not working hard enough for God and that their lives are not upright enough. That's true, isn't it? Legalism is alive and well, and that is what Galatians is about. The false gospel that Paul is taking on is a message of moral effort. It's the instinctive and respectable idea that we can earn acceptance from God by obeying his rules. That is what Paul says, ironically, will enslave you and take you further away from God. Because the real gospel is that we are saved and changed only by Jesus. As the weeks go by, we'll see how this letter undermines our human pride. The alternative teaching doesn't do that. It plays to our pride. It it, uh, urges us to try harder to become fine, upstanding citizens, but upstanding on our own two feet, instead of leaning on Jesus for his help, asking that he would work in us. 
That's what Galatians is about. And if you look at the passage again, you can see how Paul starts to set that up in verses 3 to 5. He says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to save us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Notice that. How is it that we're saved from the present evil age? Not by our own moral efforts, but by Jesus, the one who laid down his life and gave himself for us. I'd like you to lodge that phrase in your minds, please, because we'll see that again from the verse there, that Jesus is the one who um, laid down his life and gave himself for us. That's how we're rescued from the penalty our, our sins deserve. Not by doing good works for God, but because Jesus laid down his life on our behalf. He died the death we should have died. The um, eternal punishment, the curse that we were just thinking about, that's what we deserve for the way we've treated God, for the way that even though he has given us all we have and all we are, we push him out of our lives. But on the cross, Jesus became a curse for us. He took the punishment that we deserved so that we could be forgiven. And we're rescued by trusting in him. He took the hit for us. He saves us. It's only Jesus. And it's not just only Jesus that rescues us. It's also only Jesus that changes us. Maybe this is a newer idea, probably. Um, After a person has been forgiven, in response to that, there is a, a change of life. We start to want to try to please God and obey him in the way that we live. We want to serve him and to go his way. And that change, as we start saying no to our own sinful desires and temptations, start saying yes to living God's way, that change is something that only Jesus can do. It's him that saves us from the penalty of sin, and also it's Jesus that saves us from the power of sin. It's not the case that at the beginning we're saved by grace, saved by Jesus, but then our own effort has to kick in. That isn't how it works. That's not true. It is only Jesus who rescues us and only Jesus who changes us. Now, please could you look on into chapter 2 and verse 20. This is where we'll see that phrase repeated from verse 4 about Jesus being the one who has given himself for us. This this quite a famous verse. It's the kind of verse that um, uh, um, people learn. But it's a hard verse to understand. It's really hard, I think, really hard to understand. But when we do understand it, it unlocks an awful lot of what this letter is saying. Let me read it. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The point of that verse is that the whole of the Christian life is lived in Jesus' strength and not my own. The Judaizers were telling people to try harder. Paul is telling them to lean more, trust more. In the Lord Jesus. Let me try to put the verse into my own words, see if this helps. When Jesus died, I died. The old me was crucified with him. I am alive now, but it's a new me, a new me that is inhabited and ruled by Jesus. 
And so the life I now live isn't self-directed. I'm not in the driving seat anymore. Jesus is. And I rely on Jesus to shape and change me and lead me on. That's the message of Galatians. Do Christians live a life that pleases God by trying harder or by trusting Jesus? Does it ultimately come down to my effort or his spirit? Paul says that we are rescued and changed only by Jesus. Now, let's be practical. A problem I expect we'll face as we go through this letter is... You say, well, that sounds good. I kind of, you know. But what does it actually mean in practice? So thinking about that verse, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Well, okay, that, that sounds wonderful, but what does it mean? You know, how do we go out from here on our Monday morning, put that into practice? Or I live by faith in the Son of God. Well, okay, but what does that actually mean in my experience? How do I do that? Well, it's going to take us some weeks to think our way around these things. But as we move towards a close this evening, let me offer this one illustration. Imagine a young guy, a young man, who begins to think about God. Perhaps he's a fresher at university. And he starts to see how, even though God's been really generous to him, he has not lived gratefully, but has instead shut him out of his life. And he starts to understand from reading the Bible or from talking to Christians that God is angry about that, rightly, understandably, that there's a price to pay. So what can he do? As he sits in his room in halls, what can that young man do to find forgiveness from God and to find peace with him? Well, he has two options. He can either resolve from henceforth to live a better kind of life. He will go to church as often as he can, as a sign of his devotion. He will read a chapter of the Bible and say the Lord's Prayer every day. He will start to give money to charity. He will stop getting drunk. He will start being more civil to his parents and his neighbors. He will try his very hardest. Or, option two, sitting in his room, he can despair of himself. He feels his own weakness. He knows that No amount of working hard for God will make amends. And so instead he prays. And he says, God, I'm so sorry for the way I've treated you. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. But for Jesus' sake, because he gave himself for me, please forgive me. It's my only hope. For Jesus' sake, please forgive me. That's what I'm relying on. In real life terms, that's what Galatians is about. Option two, that's Galatians. Well, think about the same guy, six months down the track. He's a Christian now. He's been forgiven, accepted by God for Jesus' sake. And he's so grateful for that. And so in response, he wants to live a new life that is obedient and pleasing to God. But he still feels the old temptations. He fights them, but too often he gives in. How can he make progress? How can he live the new life that he wants to? Again, he has two options. Option one, he can summon up his own effort. Knowing where his weak points are, he can get a prayer partner who can hold him accountable, somebody he can talk to. He could download some internet accountability software, or he could train himself to count to ten before snapping back at someone. 
whenever there are lapses, he'd beat beat himself up. How could I have done that? And I must try harder. Or, option two, sitting in his room again, he prays. Lord, you have given me a new life. The old me was crucified with Jesus, and now it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Please, Lord Jesus, lead me forward in that new life. I feel so powerless to change. I feel so weak. Please work in me. You've promised that you will, and I believe you. I'm relying on you. Please, Lord Jesus, change me. And then he will go out and try to resist temptation, and he may well get an accountability partner and all that sort of thing. But he's not relying on those things. What he's relying on is the power of Christ at work within him. In real life terms, option two, that's what Galatians is about. You see, it's quite subtle, isn't it? Outwardly, there's not a million miles between those two guys. In both instances, what you have is a young man trying to live a better life. But the approach is radically different. One is all about him working, whereas the other is all about Christ working in him. And Paul says that the outcome couldn't be more different. It matters how we think about the Christian life. Now, I expect that's not fully 100% clear. Uh, Please don't worry. Over the coming weeks, we have more of a chance to think our way around this. But at first pass, that's the message of Galatians. We are rescued and changed only by Jesus. Which leaves us with the third word, the author of this letter. At the very beginning, in verse 1, if you see that, um, Paul calls himself an apostle. He's laying down his credentials as an apostle, one of God's authoritative spokesmen. The apostles were that small group. Um, Originally, it was the 12 who were appointed and sent by Jesus to speak on his behalf. The word means sent ones, as in think of I posted a letter, I sent a letter, the apostles. These men were sent by Jesus to speak for him, and they were equipped by his spirit for the task. And I wonder, um, I wonder if, that's, if you knew that's why people like Paul and John and Peter were worth listening to, and why it's worth our while reading their letters now. It's not because they were super brainy, it's because they were sent and equipped by Jesus to be his spokesman. And I hope you can see in the kind of argument of Galatians why that's an important point. Paul is laying down the gauntlet here for, his new, for, um, for the new teachers in Galatia. He's saying, I got my gospel from Jesus. Where did you get yours from? I was sent by Jesus to speak for him. What's your authority? And we'll see more about that next week. As we close... I think this passage leaves us with two questions as we head into this coming week. Two questions. First, what is your gospel? What is your good news? What is your gospel? Is your life about what you are doing for God? Or is it about what Jesus has done and is doing for you and in you? Is it about what you're doing or what he's doing? What's your gospel? And then question two. How much do you care? This is something that we can't afford to be laid back about in our own lives, in our church, in the lives of others 
round about us? Do we live? Do we pray? Do we speak as if eternity really was at stake? How much do you care? Let's pray about those things. Lord Jesus, we thank you for a gospel that acknowledges our great weakness. So that is what we feel. We thank you for a gospel that is all about your grace and your work for us and in us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. We pray that you would do that work in our hearts to make us see eternity so clearly that the things of God, the things of eternity become urgent in our hearts and in our lives as well. Lord, so often we don't feel like that. And so we ask tonight that you would work in us for your name's sake. Amen.